everybody, it's Mike from the Mike Wagner Show, powered by SoundCrab Studios. Visit online at soundcrabstudios.com for all your needs. And brought to you by our official sponsor, the Mike Wagner Show, international warring author Mia Molson's The Missing, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. We're here with an amazing gentleman who embarked in a 25 career in uh, information technology or the IT field, worked in sales, engineering, support, and design after military service. He traveled to Vietnam a number of times, also visited China. Also, at Japan, Taiwan, and Portugal on business. He began writing in a 2020 based on several trips. So, while cycling in various countries, and he also traveled to Vietnam in 2012 and find the lost embassy and the uh, Catholic nuns helped with Operation Baby Lift and completed several bike tours and uh, Ho Chi Minh and um, Macora as well, too. And um, the Mekong, I should say, and a new book actually draws upon several nonfiction events that happened in Vietnam, including the war. In, with the U.S. and Saigon falling and chaos at the embassy. The book is called Sunrise in Saigon and Live, ladies and gentlemen, plus studios in beautiful Carlsbad, California. The amazing author and also um, embarking 25-year career in IT and military service. The amazing multi-talented author of Sunrise in Saigon, Patrick Greenwood. Patrick, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Mike, very much. Thanks for having me. What's well, great to have on board, Patrick. So you embarked in a 25-year uh, career in uh, IT, worked in sales, engineering, support, and design after military service. You traveled mm -hmm. to Vietnam a number of times. You've also been in China, Japan, Taiwan, and Portugal, and mm -hmm. other various countries on business. You also cycled in uh, Vietnam um, quite a number of times. You visited in 2012 to find the Lost Embassy and also Catholic Nuns to help with Operation Baby Lift and began writing in 2020. Based on a number of events, in a book, book is called Sunrise in Saigon, which draws upon several nonfiction events that happened in Vietnam, including the war in the U.S., Saigon falling, chaos at the embassy, and more. And before getting all that, Patrick, tell us how I first got started. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. So, uh, you know, again, the, the real gist of the whole storyline, especially the book, was really inspired by two events. Um, and really what made the, the book really the book was really about something that I heard, you know, in real life when I was 11. And I remember when Saigon fell in 75 and we were hearing it on the radio. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of sunk into me that, you know, I didn't know a lot about the war. A lot of people really didn't know much of Vietnam, even back in the 70s, because we didn't have the Internet. Um, but it did inspire me later in life to know that I always wanted to go to that country. I always, even after my military service ended in 1988, you know, I very much was like, I want to go and see this country. Uh, I spent a vast majority of my adult life in information technology, primarily in cybersecurity. And around 2010, 2012, you know, I finally reached a point of life saying, you know what, I've got the journey in my heart. I got a journey in my, I've got to do in life. I feel it's time to go. And in 2012, I finally made the trip to Vietnam. Mm, that's really interesting. Uh, well, what was that one precise point that simply influenced you into what you're doing for the rest of your career? What was that one major influence or that one uh, point that just, you all know, made that happen for you? Well, I guess from a career perspective, I really, I, I grew up in technology. My father was an engineer. Uh, he worked in the Bell Labs in the 60s. So I had, I always grew up with technology around the house, always. I mean, we had terminals plugging into phones that plugged into mainframes that plugged into places. Um, so we always grew up with technology in the house. And my dad mm -hmm. used to bring a lot of the toys home. And we wanted to like, well, why is that printing out and turned out to be Star Trek off the Pentagon computer going, <laughs> are we supposed to be doing that? <laughs> so uh, that was really kind of knowing that I grew up with kind of that DNA as well. And uh, that obviously inspired me later. And then in the service, I was in communications technology as well um, and, and really enjoyed. I served in the Marine Corps from 82 to 88. Uh, obviously, technology everywhere, especially in the 80s, um, you know, coming up. And after I got out, you know, I really wanted to stay in tech. Um, but, you know, truth be told, uh, my very first job out of the military was a second assistant manager of a Taco Bell. 
And oh my god! Back up and go. Are you kidding me? All that knowledge. <laughs> like, but but truth be told, yes, it was. Um, and one of the things that really was important in life that you've got to follow that journey. You've got to follow that heart journey that you have. Knew that this was going to lead me somewhere, and it did. Uh, I ended up fixing a point of sale system in one of the restaurants just by looking at going, why is the small water ringing up as a large water? So I went in and kind of fussed with it and figured it out and said, okay, that's not too bad. But that really kind of got the, the brain going, going, I could do more, I could be more. And it kind of launched me into the next phase of life, which is more technology, more point of sale systems as well. And then I worked for a tech company um, in around 1996 that was deploying cable modems in San Diego. And so I started getting into cable modems. Then Around 1998, I was working for a finance company that got hacked. And oh, everyone's wow. like, what do we do? Well, what do you mean? What's a hack? We don't know. We saw the movie Hackers with, you know, G's really going, okay, is that it? No, that's not it. So <laughs> nobody really knew cybersecurity in, in the 90s until the dot-com bomb came in 2000. And then suddenly, when everybody crashed, everyone wondered, well, what happened to all the data? What happened to everybody's credit card information? And suddenly in 2000, 2001, I was working at Cisco Systems at the time. And we suddenly were knee deep in, okay, we've got to help people. And cybersecurity really from that point really took off. And it's been obviously on a trajectory ever since. So that's really how I got into tech, you know, obviously and stayed in cyber for a very long time. And, and that really had some piece of the book. There was some parts about hacking in the book that were important, to, obviously, but um, that's kind of how I got my start in tech. Mm, that's really interesting too. Now think about the time that um, you know you worked with uh, modems, point of sales, yeah. and uh, <laughs> everything else. What was that one most interesting piece of equipment that you ever worked with? Oh, so I was one of the very first engineers to deploy the very first Cisco router in San Diego in 1994. And no one knew what a router was, except really smart people in San Jose. And come to find out that I helped plug in the very first ISDN connection to the internet. And I didn't wow. know. I said, well, plug this in. Green light went to red, red went to green, suddenly it worked. And suddenly we could be able to surf the internet mm, on a small Nice. Bit. And I thought, well, where is this going? And obviously, if I would have invested lots of money back then, I would, you and I would be hanging on the Bahamas today. But, um, but <laughs> I'm to for it. That, but to see how that first started was realizing it was no longer dial-up. You know, people were like, okay, that's not the only way you can connect to the internet. So that was really fascinating. But I have to tell you that in 98, when I worked for that financial company and they got hacked and everyone, well, what do we need to put in there? And everyone was going, there's a thing called a firewall. Really? Go, go, go look it up. And back then you had to go order the catalogs and you had to read and look and, you know, read through the magazines and figure out what the hell a firewall was. So having the ability to kind of deploy that and, and do so in like on a weekend with like no sleep for three days. And then suddenly it was blocking things. It was like, okay, how did it do that? And you're like having to figure out the, you know, all the things to do it. But to have to be in the early inception of the internet and early inception of cybersecurity and then kind of coming up in that space and realizing, boy, there's a lot of data being stolen. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> moving out. Everybody needs a firewall, right? So, anyway, but, e but even I, I do at times. It's like, you know, I could firewall. be hacked. You never know. <laughs> well, and that's the funny thing when people talk about, oh, I've never been, my hacks, my stuff's never been stolen. I said, oh yeah, it has. <laughs> Your everybody's stuff's been stolen in one way or another. But it was kind of fun to come up in the space and, and obviously, but Later in life, as I started getting more involved in technology, I started working on you know, AmericanExpress.com, Wells Fargo, First American, a lot of very large corporations. And of course, that's part of the reason why I traveled around the world was I would travel and go to clients in other countries who also were experiencing cybersecurity type attacks as well.
Hmm. And, and what was the most interesting project that you're involved in? What was your uh, favorite country? I knew you, you, know, you went to Vietnam a number of times. What was your favorite country? And if it's not Vietnam, you know, what are some of your other favorite countries that you really enjoyed? Taiwan. Taiwan as well, because everyone thinks about Taiwan as being, well, everything's made in Taiwan. And the funny thing is that it's not everything always made in Taiwan. Everything is assembled in Taiwan. So when you actually get to cycle in Taiwan and actually go around the different cities and you see all these mini plants everywhere, these mini factories everywhere, you can understand why everybody jokes about everything being built in Taiwan. <laughs> but we were working on a thing. I was working on a project there that really was about developing a technology to record high-end video that could be recorded for long periods of time because video the, the challenge of videos you know is when the police look at video during the crime it's always blurry it, it like it only shows a piece of the crime it doesn't show the full hour and it gets kind of parsed and chopped up but we had the ability to kind of create this box that can record video longer and cleaner mm. and so we were working with a company in taiwan that was was building it for ntt japan which is the pond telephone telegraph and they were trying to use it for the Tokyo Olympics. So they were going to put these capabilities to record greater high-definite video in, in much more places around the Olympic venues as well. Now, obviously, with COVID, a lot of that kind of, you know, kind of melted out. But the ability to kind of be there working on things that you knew would have saved lives was really kind of a very positive thing. So working in Taiwan and, and seeing it from the inception of the box being built, the hard drive being built, and then the software being laid on top of that, and this high-end 4K camera recording video was like, that's really crystal clear. So if somebody did do something, then there's a high probability that these devices would have caught whoever did it. And it was definitely destined to work in the Olympics as well. So that was kind of a really fascinating thing to work on. Mm, that was rather fascinating. And I love all your uh, journeys as well, too. And your passion for cycling is really running deep. You, you mentioned about um, you know yes. cycling through, going to work in Taiwan and everything. We'll talk about your cycling career and going to uh, Vietnam as well, too. <laughs> but first, listen to the Mike Widener Show at themikewidenershow.com, powered by SoundWeb Studios. Visit online at sonicwebstudios.com for all your needs. Look at a professional website without breaking your budget. Sonic Web Studios is the answer. Sonic Web Studios offers fast, affordable custom web designs at below the competition way. Call today, 1-800-303-3960. That's 1-800-303-3960. Or email to support at sonicwebstudios.com. Mention the Mike Wagner Show. Get 20% off your first project. Sonic Web Studios, take your image to the next level. Also, time to give an official shout-out to our official sponsor of the Mike Wagner Show, international warring author Mia Molson-Zia. If you love fast-paced mysteries, you love Missing by Mia Molson-Zia, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing is fast-paced and intriguing with an unforgettable twist. It takes place in four countries, two strangers, one target, where truth is illusion and those you love will be the first to go missing. It's available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing by Mia Molson-Zia has got great reviews. And Eve 11 enjoys about how its celebrities, including Joanna Cassie, Forge, Riley, and Manilis. So grab your copy today for it goes Missing by Mia Molson-Zia, available on Amazon. Also, check out the Mike Widener Show at themikewidenershow.com and over 40 podcast platforms for 900 countries, including Facebook, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, Nightheart Radio, also Anchor FM, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Audible, Apple Music, also on YouTube, BitChute, and Rumble. Also, Hamilton Radio every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. A few networks coming soon. Take us with you on any mobile device. Subscribe to the Mike Wagner Show on the YouTube channel. Follow the Mike Wagner Show on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok today. And for great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com. Check out the Mike Wagner Show podcast. T-shirts, pop sockets, throw pillows, tote bags, hoodies. Makes great gifts 24-7. Go to Amazon.com. Check out the Mike Wagner Show podcast. 
And for more great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com slash MiaMuslinsia for great books like Missing, Once, and Wrinkles, also T-shirts, pop sockets, hoodies, phone cases, and more. Amazon.com slash MiaMuslinsia. Check it out today. I'll support the Mike Widener Show on Anchor FM, PayPal, and themikewidenershow.com. Make sure you do so today. We're here with a terrific gentleman who embarked on a 25-year career in IT, working in sales, engineering, support, design after military service. Uh, Patrick Greenwood, also the author of Sunrise and Saigon here on the Mike Widener Show. I mean, he had a great career in the IT field. He also been in military as well, too. He also traveled in uh, several countries as well, too. We cover that. And most importantly, you traveled to Vietnam quite a number of times. And you also have a passion for cycling. And you did some bike tours around there for a reason. And uh, tell us, how did you first get interested in uh, bike riding or cycling? Well, great question, Mike. So obviously, cycling is a passion for me. Uh, it really kind of started out really as a necessity. So being in technology, traveling, you know, I, I probably logged more hours than most people in a plane. And of course, Marriott used to send me get wall cards every week if I didn't stay in one of them. <laughs> <laughs> we we so, can use them, right? <laughs> absolutely. Like, hey, we haven't seen you this week, you know, Mr. Greenwood. Where do you plan to stay? But, um, but I, I, I bike my way like, over there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, same with the airlines as well. They're like, are you sure you're flying this week? I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll be on Thursday. Don't worry, I'll be there. But to, to rack up a lot of points. But but in truth be told, you know, when you're in that space, you're traveling a lot. You're you're spending 300 days out of out of the year on the road, uh, really talking about technology and cyber, of course. And from a, from a health perspective, my health really deteriorated badly. I, I was probably close to 285 pounds, and um, you know, obviously having you know health problems and things like that. And so, really, one day when my doctor told me, "Look, you're you're redlining here. I mean, you're 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 really you're pushing 48, 49 at the time, and you're really not. You're, you got a body of a 70 year old, so you got to decide what you're going to do." So I was walking in downtown Carlsbad and I kind of covered that a little bit in the book as well about, you know, running into a bike shop and kind of looking around and going, wow, those are really cool jerseys. <laughs> so I noticed I, that. Yeah. What, what, so, which one's Lance Armstrong? Can you point that to me or no, is no. that hidden away from somewhere? I'm so, kidding. <laughs> these are better ones than that. These are real. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I want one of those. We can absolutely. trade. How's that? <laughs> absolutely. These are real. I earned these. Um, so I went in the shop and checked out some bikes and I met the owner and everything. And and really be told, I, I he really turned me on to my very first bike that I haven't had since I was a kid. And I went around, you know, Carlsbad down to Del Mar and back along the 101. And was just like, I got to do this. This is it. And and that really started the journey of cycling was how passionate it is. But more importantly, what journey really did, what cycling did for me was it really gave me a different view on life. Mm. Because it's like when you're observing life cycling, you're always looking forward. You're never looking back. So everything you see in front of you is about to happen. You could decide, turn left, turn right, speed up, slow down. But that's life. And so when I started kind of connecting life's dots with cycling dots and realizing Wow, you know what? If the more you cycle, the more healthy you become, the more you're going to eat better. But it, and it, so it wasn't the end of the journey, it was the beginning of a journey. Because uh, I realized, okay, well, if I can do this, maybe I don't need to travel as much. Maybe I can mm -hmm. change jobs. Maybe I can go here. You know, and of course, that wasn't too thrilling to the, my wife at the time because um, she loved the money and everything else and loved the benefits of, hey, you're making all this money, but you're also dying on the vine. So I chose to swing life back the other way and saying, I'm going to work less. I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to get out of this field of cyber, which I technically didn't, but I kind of did. And I said, okay, what else are you going to do yourself? Eat right, eat right, cycle, and really start thinking about other things that are going to help motivate you. Then Vietnam came, came around again. When, mm. when I was 11, I heard this, I remember the, 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 the desire to want you to go to the country. And I started researching saying, well, God, you know, it's, I'm, 
you know, I can go, I can take a vacation, take a month off, I can cycle, I can find the nuns, I can find the embassy, all these things that were really kind of hanging in the heart since I was 11, I finally just made true. And in 2012, I just said, okay, I'm going to go and take a little time out in life and and follow a dream and follow a journey. And really, it, it kind of propelled me when I got there to, to realize that the moment I got off the plane, I'm looking around going, huh, Tansanat Airport, you know, where's all the planes, you know, and then you realize it's the war, get over it, you know, it's time to move forward in life. Mm -hmm. And it realized that the moment it got to the actual terminal, how modern it was, how incredible these people were and how friendly everybody was. And but so it really told me that I made the right step forward, just like mm -hmm. cycling. I'm looking forward, I'll look back. And uh, ever since that time, I've always looked forward in life. Mm. That sounds really interesting. You talked about, uh, you know, Vietnam when it fell in 75 and it just, you know, rebuilt. It must have took uh, quite quite a while to uh, rebuild as well, too. You know, after Japan got bombed, you know, it uh, you know took some time. And of course, you know, World Trade, I'm sure it's in the process, you know, sooner or later be rebuilding. It sounds like they really put their heart and dedication into um, coming back as well, too. And you also covered with the um, the war in the U.S. and also um Saigon falling and chaos in the embassy. And, um, and of course you heard about Saigon falling in 75 and, um, how much progress would you say with Saigon? And, uh, do you think it's like, you know, back to being a competitive level, like say with, um, like with Hong Kong or, um, say with, um, London, Paris, or Singapore, anything like Singapore. that? Sing Singapore, that's the other one, yeah. Singapore, yeah. So, uh, great question. So, there's 13 districts in Saigon, which is now known as Ho Chi Minh City, but many people still call it a Saigon. There's 13 districts in it. I know I cycle through 11 of them. <laughs> so, I know how many there are. Um, you would have some districts that look like Singapore, you know, huge sky rise, high rise buildings, and uh, obviously people well dressed, people professional, looking like you're walking, you know, in New York or something. And then you have the outlining areas, which is obviously where a lot of the poor is and then you have sort of somewhere in between and so it is the reason i it was so important for me to cycle through the city was a it's very crowded there's 13 million scooters running around and that was part of the reason i also got involved in helmets for kids for vietnam which is my my benefactor so my book sales my coffee sales are all going towards helmet for kids and where that really came about was really cycling around saigon and and almost running into a thousand motor scooters at a time and almost getting oh. hit and I'm thinking, I've got a helmet on, I've got my cycle jersey, which is actually the one back over there on the wall. And But then I noticed the kids. These kids were three, four years old on bikes, no helmets, no lights, no nothing, barely having a chain moving. And, and they were just, you know, feast of phantom. I mean, they had to go up against the scooters and the trucks. And it's sad to hear how much there is a challenge to that. So you observe that when you're on a bike. And then you're riding through all the other parts and you're in this nice area. You see this beautiful coffee shop. Looks like something out of Paris. You make a left down an alley and you're like, wow, whoa. And then you make another turn and suddenly it gets a little better. So it, it is definitely a city that has had its renaissance. Um, and it also has a city that it also continued to left, left a lot of things behind as well. Mm, that's rather interesting. Sounds like, you know, compare, contrast one side, the other and everything else. And of course, you, you mentioned about the, um, the, 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 the operation with the uh, head helmets and everything else for the children. You also been in Operation uh, Baby Lift as well, too, with the Catholic nuns. You also been in another operation. Uh, tell us more about that one. So Operation uh, Baby Lift happened in 75. And as you remember, President General Ford was really the one that kind of put the whole thing together, along with the Catholic nuns here in the U.S. and also in Vietnam. And the goal was they were trying to get as many orphans as out as possible on planes. And so the, the nuns 
were putting these babies into boxes and loading them onto the airstrip. And then the plane was going up. Well, tragically, the first one, as you primarily missed, your first one crashed. And so that was very tragedy of the day. But the second flight did get out and they got about 1,500 orphans out. When I remember reading that story in 75 in the Washington Post, I was very much like, well, whoa, 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 what happened to the nuns? You know, because I was raised Catholic. So I, I was thinking, okay, did they stay? Did they go? So it was always kind of a lingering mystery in the back of my head thinking, well, okay, why would they not want to get on the plane? You know, so you're be told when I finally had a chance to meet them after my first trip to Vietnam in 2012, it was the most life-changing experience in life because I had a chance to really meet three of them. And, and I got a chance to ask them that. What was really interesting was two of them spoke French. They did not speak English because many more have been around since the French were in Vietnam in the 50s. So for them to actually communicate in French and, and so on was really like breathtaking as well. But their main point was that I asked them, I said, why didn't you leave? You had a chance to, you know, you saw everything was coming. The, you know, North Vietnamese tanks are running through the city. They just crashed through the president's tower and whatever. He said, not all the children got out. Somebody had to stay behind. And they did. And when I realized that the only possession these women ever had was the cross on their on their shirt, that was their only possession. Like everything else, it, there was nothing to that. So their whole life commitment was these children. And a lot of children have come back to Vietnam. They, they shared with me that a lot of the children have made journeys back and have come to the same orphanage that still exists today. And the orphanage was like a, behind this huge metal door in Northeast Saigon. And it looked like a high school you know, high school area. It looked like big open field. It had, you know, kind of shade trees over here and they had huge kind of like like rooms and dormitories. And and the nuns were all living there. That's where they'll kind of, you know, retire to. But they were incredibly wonderful. We we did a prayer together. We kind of hung out together and, and I spent a few hours with them and I donated some money uh, for them. They also inspired me also to invest in a water company in Vietnam. So I noticed again while cycling, um, you know, when you're riding around, you look at children, you say, hey, you look at, and they all have black teeth. They all have no teeth. Oh, and, my goodness. Yeah. So you kind of stop and ask, okay, well, and I asked my guide, I said, well, you know, help me understand this, you know, a little bit. And he goes, all they drink is sugar. They can't afford water. And so thinking about every day, just taking raw sugar cane and then drinking that of whatever fluid can be done from, can drain from that. And I went, okay, so why can't they have Desanti or any of the other brands that are running around? Is it they can't afford it? It's just because that's for the people that have money. So I ended up investing in a water company that was there that, and I helped turn it around and say, look, I'm not interested in profitability here. I'm interested in, let's try to create as much clean water in the outlining district. So there were several poor ones we picked two. So these two, we're going to make sure they have clean water and, and we'll just cover our costs of doing that. Proceeds of the water sales went towards the Catholic nuns. So for almost a year, any profits we made, I split it between the Catholic nuns and the local Buddhist temples that the workers went to pray at. So between the two of them, they were all kind of benefactors of it as well. And it lasted for about a year, maybe a year and a half the most. And eventually because of, you know, things that happen in life, like, you know, police wanting bribes and <laughs> a few other things, <laughs> I eventually just liquidated it and sold all of it off for scraps. But for the year that it was open, you know, it, having the ability to see children drinking clean water. And we used to leave 55 gallon drums at the park down away and people would fill up their bottles and we'd go back and refill them every day. And, and everyone was sort of going, how are we going to stay afloat? I said, well, you know, sometimes there's a lot more things more, more important than money. And we in America, of course, have all the opportunities of mortgages and 401ks and, you know, stock plans and things in technology. You're blessed for what you have. And I was always blessed to have a lot of opportunity in life. And this was my way of not giving back, but to see children drinking clean water out of a bottle was really, really, really good to see that. And then while we're cycling on other tours, I went there three times. On the second time, we we're out further out. 
and we run into some villages and they're just like sugar cane. I said, mm -mm. so I would tell the truck guys veer off another 20 kilometers and bring another 10 cases and just drop it off right there at the corner and let people, you know, kind of get the water. So that really was my first major project in Vietnam was the water. And then Helmets for Kids came in a few years later as far as, you know, getting more involved in that charity. But yeah, the, the initial one actually was a clean water project. Hmm. I was the thing about the clean water project as well, too. I was watching a documentary about Bill Gates and um, the situation in Africa as well, too, that uh, they have the water problem and um, there was not enough toilets and everything else. And uh, kids were drinking, um, you know, water, you know, the uh, people, you know, did their business and, and everything else. Do you think there might be somewhat similar to what happened in Vietnam or was it like a lack of rivers, lakes, streams or climate wise? I and mean, how often did it rain and um you know, temperatures and everything like that. So great, great question. So at the fall of Saigon, and again, this really comes from my ability to kind of meet a lot of veterans at work. Because when I was in the military in the early 1980s, there were still a lot of guys left over from Vietnam that were in the Marine Corps even then. So I had a chance to really talk to the master sergeants and the captains and the majors that were there that were lieutenants back then and say, hey, what was it like? And so on. And over the years, I've met a lot of Vietnamese people and I've done even podcasts with Vietnamese survivors and refugees. And they told me that when the whole thing happened in April of 75, when the communist government took over, it became complete mayhem. It literally was people literally stealing from people. It was people that literally saw one drop of water, they would steal the drop and push the person out of the way to go steal another drop. It really was anarchy in its worst way. And even today, when you get in some of the outlining areas, you know, there is a lot of rivers, there's a lot of streams, it does rain a lot, it floods a lot. Now flooding there literally is three to four feet it literally is like an entire city is underwater especially in the outlining district near the Mekong delta so those are the areas we were most interested in bringing water to was those areas and uh, even with the progress that they've made in most of the districts in, in saigon you know the high rises and obviously you know being more modernization there's still a, a vast majority of people that still live in poverty and, and a lot of them do not travel to the cities like people think. They literally just stay on the farm or they stay in the Delta. They, they live off the river like they did for, you know, 100 plus years. And, and, and they still have people that will live in a hut. And, and it, it's amazing. So when you're cycling, you know, two hours out of the city, you're running into, you know, dwellings that have been here since the 40s or even the wow. 30s. Or, or old French plantations that have been taken over by groups of families that have now taken over the plantation and so on. So it, it definitely is an eye awakening, but I do think that they did obviously do a lot of modernization, of course, to be competitive in the world market. But like every other city you travel to in, in, in Asia and Europe and other places, there is areas that just didn't quite get caught up with all the modernization stuff. Mm -hmm. You also talked about, uh, you, know, you know, being a good portion of Vietnamese speaking French and everything else. And uh, the majority spoke around the 40s and 50s. How much percentage uh, are the Vietnamese uh, speaking French nowadays? Well, the older crowd. So you have to, if you go into the outlining districts and go to some of the more historical cities like Hue and Da Nang, those are all modern. Those are all English speaking. You know, Google has a big, you know, software development center now in Da Nang. I mean, a lot of the technology companies that we know, like Microsoft and others, all have huge development centers in, in Vietnam now. So a lot of the major cities, it's all English. When you get to the like the northern ends or, or the eastern ends or the highland areas, it's still, there's so many different dialects of Vietnamese. I mean, I barely can understand even the, the one in Saigon. You go north, four, you know, 4,000 you know, 4, feet, you know, up in the elevation, you run into the mountaineer people, no idea what they're speaking, you know. So it's very challenging language because it's based on tones. It's not based on what we do in English. So it is challenging to kind of communicate 
but it's interesting though when you when you have um <laughs> some of the cities that uh that you run into and you hear a dialect you're trying to figure out is it cambodian is it thai is it lao is it french or is it something in between but it was a trip to run into people that spoke french and i learned french in high school so i could communicate <laughs> that was a trip but they said we you know like what? <laughs> i'm thinking i'm ready to get hit with vietnamese or something i hit with french um, um we, we mentioned about uh you know um good portion of uh, Vietnamese speaking French in the 40s and 50s. That just blew my mind. It's just like with um here here in the States, you got several dialects. You know, where, where, where have you live? It just means think of it. So yes. <laughs> a yes. lot. Yes. So yes. and of course, you know, you talked about uh, Vietnam, you know, be involved in cybersecurity and um, new technology and everything else. That's also part of your book, Sunrise and Saigon. And, uh, you know, talking about uh, some of the um, espionage and everything going on. And we'll talk about that book. You listen to the Mike Widener Show at the themikewidenershow.com, powered by Sonicweb Studios. Visit online at sonicwebstudios.com for all your needs. And brought to you by official sponsor, the Mike Widener Show, international warring author Mia Molson's The Missing, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. We'll be back with author Patrick Greenwood of Sunrise and Saigon after this time out. We're back with author Patrick Greenwood, um, 25 career in the IT field after military service. The book Sunrise and Saigon here on the Mike Wagner Show and cover a lot about Vietnam. Also been in Operation Baby Lift and, um, you know, cycled um, Ho Chi Minh and um, other parts of uh, Vietnam as well, too. And uh, your book Sunrise and Saigon, basically about um, your first book and new series, Cybersecurity, Passion and International Espionage and non-fictional events that happened in Vietnam. And, um, you know, give us more insight about the book and uh, just, um, you know, maybe some of the um, the uh, non-events or non-fictional events that went on as well too absolutely so uh, first of all the good thing about the book is that the book is inspired by a lot of non-fictional events but truth to be told as people read i don't want to give too much away it is a historical fiction romance novel so it does have some romantic interest there is a obviously main character which is jack kendall uh jack very much you know very similar in age uh to, to who i am uh, you know, obviously was going through very similar things in his life, makes a trip to Vietnam. He, he wants to meet this girl that he's been chatting with for quite some time. Uh, and part of his journey of recovery is not only making the journey, but really what life was like after he went to Vietnam. And in parallel, his love interest in the book, uh, Lynn, uh, was having very similar life experiences while living in Vietnam as well. She was a younger lady. Uh, and a lot of the book kind of tells on their brief romance that they had and then how Jack had to come back to America and then went on to her life and how they kind of had parallel events happening in their lives. And the cover of the book, again, I, I, I always want to give the hint of the book, but the book has a picture of the Saigon River. And the reason it was called Sunrise in Saigon was that's the view that both of them shared their first morning together. And the river is very, very symbolic because truth be told that a lot of the uh, the relationship over the years after they had their initial relationship togetherness was there was always going to be a river between them. There was never going to be a time they'll ever be together again like they were. And so the, the journey in life that really kind of really was the undertone of the book talked about that Jack made the decision to take this journey. He wanted to go to Vietnam. He wanted to be able to meet Lynn. He wanted to find the nuns. But he also knew that this was about reshaping who he was. And it kind of went back to how he got himself sick to begin with, right? And then this whole transformation in life is saying, don't be afraid to take the journey because you may love the outcome. Hmm. And he did make the changes. So later in the book, when he gets more towards 2016, 17 and other things in life that happens, he ends up becoming not only a better person, but he discovered that, you know what? There, there's more for me out there. I made the choice. I made the decision. I now am better for it. 
And Lynn also made the same choices in Vietnam with her family life, with her married life and things that she was going through. And even at the end, as you kind of creep towards the end, there's a, there's a wonderful part about um, you know leading into the next book, because this is a series. There's another book coming called Codename Dragon Ball, which is due out next year, um, which is also about cybersecurity and hacking Bitcoin and mm. things like that as well. But this really kind of led towards, is Jack and, and Lynn going to get together at the end? And I'm not going to spoil the end, but I have to tell you, it took me two weeks to write the end. Really? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it sounds like you made it that quick. There's some authors who do it like about two months or even two years yeah. or longer than that. So it took me two weeks of writing just one page of, you know, less than 200 words. And I, cause I really pondered how should this end? How, how does these things end? Cause I, I had a continuum. There is a, there is a villain introduced in the book that is a very pivotal villain in the next book as well. He's a kind of an international hacker that Jack has to go after. So it really takes a wonderful transformation of you have a broken down person who knows he's got to step out of where he is. He's got to get out of the cycle that he's in right now. He's taking on biking. He realizes health is, is really not good. But then he realizes as more that he learns about Vietnam and he sees the simplicity of the people, he sees the compassion of the people, that maybe there is something gorgeous. So every step he takes, every cycle he rode, every pedal he pedaled, he became a better person. He became happier. He became healthier. And he had this wonderful companion with him that also was she was pedaling, she was cycling, she was having her her way of life that she was going through as well as a parent and it, it seemed that their two lives kind of shaped the way they did and then you know they kept trying to find ways to come together but there was always no bridge there was no way that it would have happened and they both kind of came to that realization they both went on in life and had different things and and that's why the end was so interesting because the ending was so challenging was because some of my beta readers said hey please are they gonna i'm like can't say gotta read it mm -hmm. <laughs> but, I, I... Uh, but it's wonderful to write it that way. I think that's the best you can do is just like with your second book, uh, codename uh, Dragon Ball. It's yes. just where it's just like, you know, you go through cybersecurity, espionage and all that stuff. It's like, you know, who knows when you guys will meet again? I guess that's the number one question on that. Yes. She shows up in book six. <laughs> again, she'll make, she doesn't make, she does not make an appearance in codename. She does not make an appearance in Shores of Okinawa, which is the next book after that. She does not make an appearance in Green Kyoto. However, she will definitely make an appearance in Sunset in Paris, which is book six. Um, but the funny thing is there's other people that get introduced. There's other characters. There's other love interests that come into play. But, but in the second book, where this one is a little bit more historical fiction and romantic, book two is very much into hardcore cyber terrorism. China hacking Taiwan, you know, really getting into the real diehardness of, you know, you know, how hackers go up against each other and the organized crime hires hacker groups and things. So book two is much more different than book one, but but Jack is still alive and well. He's still he's become this international troubleshooter, of course. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, he does face a lot of tragedy. And and in in, in the world of cyber terrorism, uh, there is a lot of tragedy that people never hear about. They don't hear about how people are targeted or families are targeted or children are targeted by, by global hackers. So um, being in cyber for so many years, you know, I've seen my fair share of, you know, those types of things going on and you just have to kind of shake your head and go, how the hell they find them? You know, how do they know about this? And truth be told, a lot of people's data have been stolen for years and they know where you live. They know your phone number, your social security number. They know your place of employment, right? They all know all that. So in the next couple of books, it plays a lot more towards that type of narrative where this one was more of a historical fiction romance but more leading into Jack becoming this 
this global troubleshooter, this this like super counter hacker type of person, which is kind of what leads in the next book. Mm-hmm. And based on similar events as well, too. I mean, everybody gets cyber hacked, you know, any yes. which way, whatever. I mean, you have to go to Facebook and change your passwords like, you know, <laughs> a gazillion times, you know, just, like, just like many of us. And I have to tell people, hey, you've been hacked and everything like that. So it's yes, like, yes. you know, you know, you know, nothing new. And I guess um. So just that second book with codename uh, Dragon Ball, if I got that right, do you think it would also teach people how to be more safe in um, cyberspace, protect their identity and everything like that? Could it also be like maybe a how-to and what lessons you can learn? Uh, not really, to be honest. The book, the second book is more about, it gets into a much more global terrorism. It gets into things that happen at a much larger scale. I once, I had an interview uh, of a writer on my own podcast as well. And he had, he was in finance and he told me the story of how, when you and I trade stocks, we're, we're not moving the needle. When the industry or the industrial buyers of the big, you know, the big people, the big, you know, the CalPERS and the people of the world that have huge, you know, investment funds, when they trade, it moves the needle. When you get into cyber hacking and global hacking, when countries are hacking countries, it's on a whole nother level that we hope we never Oh, get my gosh. It's not about the person individual. I mean, that's simple stuff. Like hacking people's phones has been done for years. But when you're talking about large scale, you know, cu- country against country, organized crime against organized crime. And you have organized crime units going out and farming out their hackers to another organized crime goes, hey, we'll give you our hackers for a few weeks, but we need 50 million in Bitcoin. That's why you're going to start seeing a lot of the Bitcoin conversation coming up. Because in 2023, we do expect in the industry a huge growth of Bitcoin. We expect a huge, even with the crash of this one that got hacked last week and went bankrupt. Yeah. Okay. But but next but next year you're going to see a lot more Bitcoin and a lot of this blockchain. So the timing of the books is going to really paint on everything is Bitcoin. Everything is you know cryptocurrency. When the hackers get paid, they get paid on the digital wallets. Then people hack their digital wallets. They just oh my goodness! And the revenge Good on it. I've so... got mine in my back pocket here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So so the next book definitely takes it up a level on on that. And but it makes it to where especially if you look at the geopolitics of the day and you're looking at China and Taiwan going at it and everyone thinks it's going to be guns and missiles and bombs. No, no, it's all cyber. It's mm. I'm stealing your phone number. You're stealing my my data center. You're jacking my health records. It's all kind of at that playing, playing field. And do you think Russia is also part of it as well too? Or do you think they're like the, the king of it? It's like, you know, Russia has been all over the news when it comes to cyber hacking. So in book three, there's a criminal who is a Russian ex-military from Afghanistan from the 80s who really becomes the ultimate bad guy in, in the remaining books. And he is an absolute scumbag on all levels. He has a whole global hacking firm based in Budapest. Oh, so- my goodness. <laughs> of all places. Good thing it wasn't in Los Angeles or anything no, no, or even, no. say, in, um, somewhere in Iowa or something. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's been, so there's a lot of that in the next in book three. I really introduced, the, you know, the. the the Russian criminal who is really the ultimate. So you take it at, at a China Taiwan level, and they kind of get at it from the cyber side. And you got the Yakuza, and you got the Japanese the Chinese triads going on, and they have their hackers. And now you kind of bring this Russian guy who's been sitting on the fray, going, "Keep going, you guys hash it out. Whoever survives, call me." And he gets <laughs> in a very big way. But but ultimately, in real life, you know, when you're looking at where hacking really is, it, it is it it, it could be. Nigeria, it could be Libya, it could be North Korea, it could be Iran, it could be Russia, it could be China, it could be the Ukraine, it could be anywhere. And what it's what it's what the what are the war between Russia and Ukraine has really shown is that countries are willing to call their hacker underground and say, look, for the good of the country, 
bring your tools, bring your toys. We need this. And now you're seeing people in Ireland get mobilized. People in Greenland are getting mobilized to, to fight in the Ukrainian war on a cyber level. Oh, so my. I think Russia, Russian is really kind of the ultimate bad guy. You know, China, of course, has its own resources. But truth be told, we have ours. Right. We, we have an incredible cyber inventory in, in, in the United States government out of, out of availability. And but don't be surprised. Nigeria has been a spam capital of the world. I mean, Nigeria. Is oh, my goodness. Y yes. You, you know, what? And, and I just got uh, an email from the guys and saying, uh, <laughs> I want you to send me 90 million dollars. And I'll say, <laughs> OK, not yeah, and half and half the words are misspelled in the email. So. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll say like you know Texas, USA, or they'll exactly. spell um, Carlsbad yes. with like with an F or something. That's like that's you right. know it. <laughs> yeah, and that's where you hit the little delete button or mark the market as spam. But spam, obviously, Nigeria is very big on spam. But it was surprised people that when, even when you have really small countries like Egypt has a extremely formidable force of cyber terrorists, and and many of them are ex-military. Many of them are. To, truth be told, many of them come from very poor backgrounds. And uh, when you have these development countries, and this is sort of how a lot of hackers are developed, you get into a lot of the North Africa countries that are very poor. It didn't take long for Russia and China to put cyber technology resources in those countries and train these people to say, look, we're going to train you how to do this, but you need to do it when we call you. So imagine a lot of the developing countries, the reason these people are making money and they're getting paid by Bitcoin is how they're making money is because they were hired and trained by, you know, developing large, you know, first generation countries. And so that's, that's where the books kind of lead to in the next couple of books is about how you suddenly have a hacker group in Ireland. That's like, oh Ireland. my gosh. And they, but they have knowledge, capability, skill, and they, they get hired out by a Russian terrible guy to do some things. And that's really kind of the state of global, global cyber terrorism right now. Oh my gosh. And and speaking of the Irish, they're probably doing it with a seven course meal, a beer Absolutely. and a six pack and a potato. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And drinking lots and lots of Jameson at the same time. <laughs> there you go. And and then the Russians are having their vodka and just having Absolutely. their way. So we got that. Yes. I, I can see a World War 3.1, what's happening. I could see as well, too. It's like, forget the tanks, forget the military. It's like, you know, pull out the laptops and everything. <laughs> anyway. And, and and that's happening. I mean, that 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 really, I mean, that that's one of the things that people don't realize is when you get into cyber and you start getting that side of it, data is stolen every day, ransomware happens every day, hospital records are stolen every day. That's war, right? You have people's personal emails getting hijacked, people's accounts being stolen, people's money getting drained from their pensions, the elderly, the scams that they do against the elderly is terrible. Oh I speak upon that even my own blogs that I write every week about elderly care and trying to help more elderly people with cyber protection because they're the ones that are getting the emails and the texting and the voicemails. Hey, it's the IRS, you didn't pay your taxes and they panic and they give up their credit card immediately. They say, oh, here, here, here. And, and that happens a lot here. And so ability to kind of help educate people is another another thing. Another cause that I'm gonna be taking up later is really elderly security is one I really wanna get into. Oh, wow. Okay, and what are some of the cyber tips uh, you can offer as well since we're on that subject? Yeah, so number one thing is that if somebody calls you and threatens you, hang up and then immediately call the same number back and guarantee you, if you try to call that number back, it's disconnected. So that's the first thing you always have to do. Number two, the IRS never calls you and IRS never sends the emails. They always do it to the mail. So if somebody says, hey, we're the IRS, you didn't do this, it's not them. The second thing you always want to do is if you ever get a text from somebody, you don't recognize the number, delete it first. If somebody really wants to get hold of you or somebody's like the lost friend from third grade, they're going to call you, not text you. Or, 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 or leave a message too, so. Exactly, exactly. And the third one I always recommend, people that have home Wi-Fi and home wireless, 
make sure that your guest VLAN, your guest network is different than your home network. Don't use the same password on both. It's funny how people drive by people's homes and they still can connect to their Wi-Fi and they guess the password and going, it's probably admin or something. And they jack into it or they give out the password for people that visit that they haven't seen in years. And they realize, well, wait a minute, that guy now can get into my Wi-Fi by sitting in his car. Use a different password. So things like home networking and having security at home is very important as well. Mm -hmm. And very important as well, too. And of course, that's talked about in the series as well. Too. In the meantime, where can we find um, Sunrise and Saigon at and all your other works at? So first of all, the book is available today on pre-order. They can go to sunriseandsaigonnovel.net. Uh, and the book is orderable from there as well. And I also got a nice synopsis of the book as well. And uh, it will be released November 30th uh, publicly through Austin McCauley, which is my publisher. And then my launch will actually be on 12-12 of 2022 as well. But if people do want to download the book or, or do a pre-order in the book today, it's sunriseandsaigonnovel.net. We will certainly do that. We're with our author Patrick Greenwood of Sunrise and Saigon here on the Mike Wagner Show. A very big thing for your time, Patrick. Learn a lot from you. Great stories and everything. Got to have a Jameson and everything else. And um, you know, talk more about that. Maybe cycling Saigon with you. And uh, just a couple more things. Who do you consider biggest influence in your career? From the cybersecurity side, I would say probably working for if it just cybersecurity, it's it's obviously working with clients. Every client I've ever worked for, you learn from you learn from their experiences. And when you when they look at you to say, look, we really need you to help stop this problem. Our organization is not going to be here tomorrow if we don't come back from this particular cyber attack. Helping customers, helping people, uh, influencing people, obviously getting involved with helmets for kids in Vietnam is very important to me. They actually sent me my very own helmet. Can you bring it a little closer here so we can see it? Sure. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. That <laughs> is really nice. I like that. So they shifted to from Vietnam to me as well. So as I mentioned earlier, all my all my book sales, all my proceeds, my books, and my coffee, which is psychowriter3espresso.com coffee, all the proceeds go to helmets for kids in Vietnam as well. So um, and again, I, I believe in the cause. I, I like to see more children wear more helmets like this instead of not wearing them at all. Especially here in America, I'd love to see kids wearing helmets, but this is definitely a cause. But yeah, no, that, those are my biggest influences for sure. And my kids should do the same thing. And I can love, I love that coffee as well, too. I'm a big coffee drinker. So we can all use a little coffee and helmets. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and what's the best advice you can give to anybody at this point? Uh, for people to bike? Um, just anything in general. Well, I guess, first of all, it, it kind of closing on the book is that the book itself is really about the decision to take that journey in your heart. And I think everyone has a journey in their heart to, to, that they do. They've been wanting, like, and the last thing that I learned about with, as you're getting older in life, you look at regret and say, God, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have taken that trip. And, the, you know, the main character, Jack Kendall, obviously had that same desire to say, you know what, 55, I've been wanting to do this since I was 11. I, I may want to go do this. I should do this. I will do this. And, and regardless of what I think the outcome is, it's still worth it. Every journey in life is worth taking, but you don't know until you know until you do it before you you know before it's too late. So I always encourage people, whatever that journey you have in your heart, take the journey. And certainly we'll do so. And I'm planning mine out right now. We're with author Patrick Greenwood of Sunrise and Saigon here on the Mike Wagner Show. Patrick, a very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely fantastic. Learned a lot from you. Looking forward to having soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Glad to have you back. And once again, what's your website? How do people contact you? Where can people purchase or check out your book? sunriseandsaigonnovel.net is where you can buy the book. You can also see more information about uh, Cycle and Helmets for Kids as well. We'll certainly check that out. Once again, Patrick, a very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely amazing. Looking forward to having you again soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Live to have you back and wish you all the best. And Patrick, 
you definitely have a great future ahead of you. You too. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Mike, for having me on.